I've had two or three occasions in AA in the 38 years when I lost my enthusiasm. And it can happen because you, you kind of get, you watch other people not do anything and think, well, why don't they get off their ass and help? Because we could save so many more. And I can be a little uh, pet, peckish or pet, petty rather about having to do more work than everybody else. But my sponsor always said, they'll be grateful. If they're not doing their job, you get to do theirs. You don't have to, you get to. Is there anyone out there? From Darkness to Life contains the real stories of individuals who found their way out of the darkness caused by mental health challenges and substance abuse. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Our Collective Journey is here for you. Please reach out when you're ready to ourcollectivejourney.ca or on Facebook at Our Collective Journey. Good day and welcome to another episode of From Darkness to Life, an Our Collective Journey podcast here from the Plugged In Media Network studio. Uh, today, you got me, Rick Armstrong, my good friend Ryan Oscar, and two guests uh, from one of the 12-step programs. We have Mark T. and Dale G. here. Welcome. Thanks. Good to be here, guys. Good to see you again. Yeah, awesome. good to be here. Uh, Mark has been on before. This is Dale's first go at this. Um, <laughs> I've been privileged enough to know both these men for quite a while. Um, today we're going to kind of dive into what, uh, what 12 step is, I guess. Sure, um, that sounds great. Yeah. It, uh, I know, I know when I first got into the program, what I thought the program was and what it actually was were two completely different things. Um, so I think this is, you know, an educational piece more than anything for the masses. And by masses, I mean like the 10 or 15 people that might listen. <laughs> well, 10 or 15 is better than nothing. That's mm-hmm. right. Someone's going to hear it today. Yeah. So I guess we start off by saying, how's everybody doing today? Uh, I'm doing good today. I'm doing really well. Um, things are going well. Weather's nice in the presence of recovery and, uh, Yeah. Things are really good today. I can't complain about anything. Yeah, I'm doing awesome. I got a chance to uh, attend a, a friend's wedding yesterday, a, a young man I helped uh, get sober a few years ago. So that oh, was nice. fun. And uh, no masks yesterday, so a little <laughs> bit of an semblance of uh, normalcy. Isn't that weird? So it, it, it was, you know what, it's going to be looked back as just like a bad relationship, right? It's going to be a... Easy one to forget. So, looking forward to some normal unless it keeps coming back. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. yeah, I think we've had these conversations like three times now. Yeah, yeah. crazy. Yeah, and I'm doing good. Like I told you guys when we were coming in here, I woke up sober, and I've never forgot how good that feels because I know the difference. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't owe anybody an apology so far today, so I think I'm probably on a winning streak. Life is good. Awesome. So just. For some background, um, I've, when I first came into the 12 step program, I was actually highly intimidated by both of you (laughs) and, you know, in full honesty, you know, I don't, I don't even think I like Dale. (laughs) Probably not. I didn't like you either. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, man, this guy just thinks he knows everything. eh?" (laughs) And it, and here I am a few years into this going, you know, he doesn't know everything, but he's sure a good representation of what I want to do. It went from being a guy that I didn't like to a guy that I try to emulate a little bit. So yeah. um, that relationship's definitely growing for me. So I guess we can start. Um, maybe you can just tell us how long you've been sober and a brief description of uh, how you got there. How'd you get to be in a place of recovery? Oh, man. By near the uh, committing homicide and suicide several times, I've been I've been doing this deal since I was 31 years old. I'm uh, going to be 70 next month, so I've been sober wow. 38 and some uh, March of March 13th of 81. And uh, I wasn't alive yet. <laughs> <laughs> I was six. <laughs> 83, not 81. Sorry, I, I've been. It's been long enough. I can sometimes get the date wrong. 81 is when my son was born. But to just to the way you get to this place. And it'd be, it's all trite and you can be cute and say, oh, well, I just drank too much too often. And, and that might be technically true, but that's not the deal. The deal is the only way that I could feel uh, any sense of comfort and relief and being in control was by drinking. And I learned that when I was probably eight. 
the very first time I remember drinking enough that I could tell the difference was getting wine glasses off the armchairs of my parents and my grandparents at Christmas one year. I was small enough that when we went home, I could stand up in the back of our 52 Ford, lean on the seat and tell jokes to my dad and he would laugh. And that just didn't happen. The sense of freedom and release and the hundred percent, this is what I like mm-hmm. when I, the very first time I drank was that, that big a deal. And I've since come to learn that that sense that I had, that, that overwhelming sense of wellness mm-hmm. and accomplishment and everybody loves me and I, and it's good was true because everybody did like me a little bit better because I was outgoing and extroverted. I didn't know that was a bad thing. I also did not know that that's not normal. I thought everybody felt like that when they drank and I could not understand why they didn't want to drink more and with me. <laughs> right? For sure. And, and I can, I will tell you that, uh, for the next 20 years or more, like I, I didn't start, I didn't start paying a price. Some of my girlfriends and parents and vehicles started paying some prices, but I never started paying a price for my, my, uh, love affair with my enemy friend, as we've discussed sometimes, I didn't start paying a serious price till I was in my mid twenties. So I was drinking heavily and and I was excited and fun. And it was a, clearly was the best thing that I thought could ever happen. It was such a good deal that I remain convinced to this day that it was, I not drinking. I doubt very much I'd have ever got a first date, much less got, any kind of intimacy with girls because I was scared to death of them. Right. I was a tough farm kid, ranch kid. We could ride bulls and do all the stuff that we did. But I had some overwhelming fears. I'll also tell you that, uh, like our book says, once I started having trouble with not being able to not drink and not and some of the tragic things we do drinking, that my sense of accomplishment and self-confidence and I can get anything done began to diminish. And I didn't know it was because of the drinking. I thought there was something wrong with me, mm. or the perversions or weakness or cowardice or things. And I knew I wasn't that guy. But I come to understand after I got sober, that's alcohol. Something that you think you should be able to do no longer works. And you start losing self-confidence and the ability to think and carry out life and to do well. And then that was reflected in everything. Everything. My work, my school. By the time I got to grade 10, I was drinking fairly often, and I was a smart kid, senior matric. I was, I was well on my way to a high-speed college or university education. By the time I was in grade 10 and 11, when I couldn't find uh, whiskey to steal from dad or whatever, we would, I lived on a farm, so I would, uh, we would uh, steal gas from our fuel tanks, mm-hmm. put it in little peanut butter jars, which were often in our junk pile, take them to school. And if I couldn't drink, I would sniff gas. I didn't know I had a problem. And I didn't wasn't going to find out that this was an issue until uh, the, the last time I tried to, the only time I ever tried to quit drinking on my own, I was 27. And I thought it was a kind of a lark. So I did that. And then after that, I won the bet. My buddy and I got drunk and we continued to drink. Now, by the time I'm 25, 26, 27, I'm starting to get suicidal ideation. I'm starting to think there's times I wake up at that 3 o'clock in the morning when everybody is not around, and that's when you hate yourself the worst. 3 in the morning, witching hour, whatever that is. And I had gone from a position of, uh, like, cocksure arrogance about me and my life. And I thought people who thought about suicide were deeply weak people and something tragically wrong with them to like our book talks about with Bill and some of our friends. By the time I quit drinking, I was heavily suicidal. And I will say that the day that day before I quit drinking, I did two days before, which kind of got me to the bottom, I guess the bottom we're all supposed to hit. I did an attempted murder and an attempted suicide, and I was deadly serious about both. And it, it was only, I think, some kind of divine intervention. <clears throat> now, the attempted murder that I was going to do, I believe the divine intervention was to save my buddy, who I had got drunk at at a gambling party and playing. I was going to shoot him and tried, and the gun misfired. I remember I used to tell my sponsor how lucky I was that God had intervened and saved me from going to prison. <laughs> 
self-centered the way I am. <laughs> Good thing he saved you, eh? <laughs> right? Saved me and my sponsors. Actually, it was her husband. Frank looked at me and said, you know, Dale, you're about as self-centered as I can imagine. Did yeah. you ever think that maybe God was saving your buddy instead of you? And of course, that washed over me like that wave of realization. Of course, that's true or probably true. <laughs> mm-hmm. The suicide was another matter. I had a little 38 that I always carried in my briefcase or in the truck because I grew up in the ranch. We always had guns. And I did try with a will. Mm-hmm. Clearly, I knew I, I didn't think I was alcoholic. I had money in the bank. I had a good business. I was high-functioning alcoholic, you know, like my dad, for example, for years. I didn't think I was alcoholic. And I've said to the guys, if you had put me on a uh, lie detector, seriously, the day I, before I got to AA and said, are you an alcoholic? I would have said, absolutely not. And I would have passed the test because I absolutely believed that. Now, turns out, I thought, I thought uh, there was a lot of things wrong with me in the back of my head that I never talked about to anybody. I thought that there was darkness in there. I thought I was possibly capable of murder. I thought I was possibly capable of all sorts of perversions because of the way my head worked. Mm-hmm. So when I found out, and I know this is, might sound a little strange, but when I found out that the only thing wrong with me is I was heavily alcoholic, it was a relief. Yeah, yeah. It was actually better than what I imagined me to be. So here I am. I'm an alcoholic, and, and as luck would have it, and this doesn't happen for everybody, Rick and Ryan. It doesn't, but, you know, Mark will sure tell you. I landed, when I got to my first AA meeting, I was brought there by a buddy of mine who refused to believe that I, when I would tell him, I'm not an alcoholic, you know, get out of my house. And he'd come back, <laughs> we'd play cribbage, and he was he had been sober six weeks. I would kick him out of the house, but when he took me to my first meeting after my attempted murder and suicide, where I hit my bottom, and I had agreed I'd go with him, the people I landed with were Frank and Charlotte. Now, Charlotte became my sponsor because of who she was and how her head worked. And uh, they were big book thumpers. They were AA, like 100% AA step Nazis kind of deal, that this is the only way people like us can survive. And I'm here to tell you that that's true. I didn't land amongst the... uh, how should, what's the word I want? Uh, the, pe- the half measures. The half measures, <laughs> yeah. The half measures bunch that'll tell you, oh, just relax, take it easy, don't worry. You don't have to do anything here. Just keep, just do a step whenever you get used to it. Take what you like and leave the rest. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it, it got to be a little bit crazy. But anyway, the, I shouldn't keep rattling on because I'm, once I get started on this recovery thing, it's I'm so excited about it. Thirty eight years. That's and why I still you're here. The same, yeah. and, that, and that's the point, right? That's that's I think the biggest reason I'm excited to hear you today is I've seen in my what coming up on five years now, I've seen a lot of people in and out of in and out of these rooms, For sure. right? And uh, not many of them. A lot of them come in with the same fired up passion that you have. And it fizzles out really, really quickly. Yeah, it can. Yeah. And sure. and that's what I think fascinates me about you is 38 years later, yeah, still being as willing and passionate and committed as hopefully people are day one. Yeah. And, and what I'll say, what I can say about that is, let me do this. The pink cloud, right? You'll see old timers and some younger ones that should know better saying to newcomers who are excited and full of fire and want to go help people, oh, well, just, you know, take it easy. That pink cloud will wear off and you're going to crash hard. So be careful. Don't get too excited. Well, good grief. That's insane. You know how long a pink cloud lasts? Just as long as you're busy helping other people get sober. If that's my priority in life, but the pink cloud never leaves. If I go do a 12-step call to 3 o'clock in the morning when it's 30 below, by the t- I might not want to go, and I might be cussing on the way down to, say, the corona. But by the by the time I get there, I'm in love with this guy. Yeah. I'm going to help him. I get to God put me in a position, and I was an atheist. So, man, that was wild. <laughs> where I get to take the worst parts of my life and use it to help other people not die. And I understand clearly where I was and what I was like, and I know this. The very best that I can be on my own and by myself is what I was the day before mm-hmm. I got to AA. That's it. And I was down, right? Anything that's since then that's better is all AA, God, and you guys. It's the whole yeah. deal. 
I've had two or three occasions, and Mark and I talk about this once in a while, two and a half times in AA in the 38 years when I lost my enthusiasm. And it can happen because you, you kind of get, you watch other people not do anything and think, well, yep. why don't they get off their ass and help? Because right. we could save so many more. And I can be a little uh, pet, peckish or pet, petty rather about having to do more work than everybody else. But my sponsor always said, they'll be grateful. If they're not doing their job, you get to do theirs. You don't have to, you get to. Yeah. Now the two or two and a half times that I got suicidal, let you know how we are. My brain is what it is, and I can kill myself pretty easily if I get focused on me, my retirement, my career, my sex life, my this, my mm-hmm. that. I've I've learned as our founders in this outfit taught us that I must constantly place the welfare of others ahead of my own, and it for me it has to be other alcoholics, then my children, and then my business. And in that order, I have a fatal disease. And if I'm not focused on helping other alcoholics first, then my self-centeredness floods back in. I block myself off from whatever the sunshine of the spirit is, this, this thing of ours that keeps us sober. And my insanity comes back. My mental disease, whatever you want to call it, comes flooding back. And within days or weeks, I can become suicidal and homicidal sober. Mm-hmm. I have to have this in order for me to to be happy and contented. And when I'm happy and contented, I do the things that make others happy and contented, and it spirals up. That's the deal with this, Rick. It's uh, if I do this, I know what the results will be. But I must do it, whether I want. To. Well, like Mark will say, and like I've said lots, I must do this, especially when I don't want to, yeah. because my self centeredness <laughs> and my pettiness and my my, I'm going to whine about something today. <laughs> will tell me that you don't have to go to the meeting today, and you don't need to take on any more sponsees. You've got eight, so let somebody else do the. And as soon as I get that petty, I start to drift down. And if I get very petty, I'll drift down fast. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Does that answer the, the question you were thinking about? Yeah, and I think you know I've not to the degree of thirty-eight years of experience, but I think I've in my short time learned those same lessons. I've, I've, I came in really hard. I came in perfect. Like actually when you were telling your story about how you came in, I think I came in in a similar circumstance of absolute broken willingness Mm -hmm. and got lucky enough to be put into a room with the right people at the right time. Mm -hmm. And that's a big deal. Cause I've seen other rooms that I know had that been my first experience, I wouldn't have nearly been as successful. Not to say I'm successful, the program wouldn't have been successful through me, right? Um, yeah, but you are successful. Let's face it. I mean, sure. I mean, it's good to be modest, but I think, Rick, if we, if you don't mind me saying, if we're, if we're too modest, then we become not the light they want to see. Do you know what I mean? No. But honesty is you are successful. You're successfully sober. You don't drink. You don't do drugs. You got your family together. You got your poop in a group. You got a, you got a job where you're of service to the elderly. I mean, what measure of success would, more would you want? Yes. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Especially considering the position, the position I was Where in when were, I came in. Right. right? And so, you know, when you, when you talk, I think I've, I, I can relate to that because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't at all me. I was the best, I was the best me I could be the day before. And yep. I was suicidal, homicidal, and as broken as a man could be. Yeah. And I was lucky enough to be put into a room with the right people at the right time that by divine intervention or whatever it was, I got a message that a lot of people don't get their first time. And I'm thankful Mm -hmm. to this day about it. However, I was that sprinter, right? I was that pink cloud guy. I did it. I did it really hard, really well, fully committed and felt remarkable really quickly. And that lasted about four months. Mm -hmm. And then I got the opportunity to relocate. And for me and my story, that opportunity, I, I took as a fresh start. And so I tried to, what do we call it? The geographical. Geographic relocation. Yeah. Yeah. The logistical fix. Yeah. (laughs) Doesn't work. And uh, so I moved and I left. And and when I got to my new destination, I was like, you know what? I'm, I got this because I was feeling that good. 
I'm like, I got this. Mm-hmm. I don't need this program. I don't want to go up here and have to go to meetings and explain to people why I'm here and explain to people. I'm like, I, I can just, I can absolutely, I made a conscious decision to rest on my laurels. <laughs> yeah, very much the Ebby Thatcher. And it was, I maybe made it 16 months. I made it a couple months well, and then it just started downhill. And inside of 16 months, I was v- remarkably suicidal, committed to suicide. And sober. Sober. Yeah, I know. Stone I it, right? sober. That's, that's, the, that's the thing about mm-hmm. our disease. Yeah. <clears throat> Stone yeah. sober with no program and absolutely convinced that I was a burden on my family, my mm-hmm. friends, mm-hmm. The, the, the system as a whole. I genuinely, honestly thought the world would have been better off without me. Mm-hmm. And it Again, I was lucky enough to find those same guys that found me the first time and they scooped me back up. And I remember, <laughs> and I remember the phone call and it was, you know, and I just said, listen, I think I'm done. I'm going to, I'm going to shut her down. And the response that I got was, I don't recommend it to a lot of people, but it was like, Hey dude, get your shit together. Like you've been right here before. Mm-hmm. What did you do last time? Well, I got involved in the program. Yeah. Well, maybe it's time to come on back. Right. And, and I did, and it got remarkably better again. And it wasn't until probably this last year that I completely surrendered to service. And like, that's a big deal. That second surrender. Isn't oh, it? <clears throat> the and the gifts surrender. that come with it oh, are like, yeah. you know, even, even at my best on that pink cloud, where I am today was like, not even possible in my, like, mm-hmm. It was, it's so next level where we're at now. And, and like, I go to sleep without any regret, any, I sleep. Like I never used to be able to sleep, whether it was guilt, shame, high, drunk, like whatever the causes that brought me there, I can actually get a decent night's sleep now, which is remarkable. And you know, the gifts, the gifts just keep coming. Like I, I just had the weekend, week. The weekend I had last weekend was something that I couldn't have dreamed of as a 12-year-old kid or as a 30-year-old guy. Like, it was it was absolutely remarkable, and it was a really good opportunity to reflect on the gifts of sobriety. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, I have lots of people that ask me uh, quite often, you know, are you going to do those 12 steps and work that program and, you know, go to those meetings for the rest of your life? And I'm like, yeah, I tried it once before. <laughs> And uh, it didn't work out so well for me. You know, you talk about the second uh, surrender, uh, similar part of my story. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the first surrender for me was going to treatment, working this program that Mm -hmm. was introduced to me in treatment. And that lasted six months. I went back into the rooms and I looked for all the differences in people. I'm like, I'm not like you people. You guys have real problems. I still have a job. I have a marriage. I have these things. I don't need this program. And within a year and a half, I was back to taking my life. Yeah. So the second time it was like full surrender do whatever is suggested to me by anyone who's in recovery that I, you know, want what they have and work these 12 steps. And man, when I started working those 12 steps and really working them like they're laid out and then focusing on step 12, once I got there, instead of just saying, I'm done, program's over. Now I do step 12 daily and help anybody who comes my way. And like you said, my life's never been better. Uh, step 12 is not a finish line. No, it's the no. beginning. Yeah, right? sure, That's the right? gravy. That's the best part. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, well, I you know personally, um, I guess, first of all, I'd like to express a tremendous amount of gratitude uh, for Dale. Um, I'd been in and out of 12 step for seven years, right? As an absolute chronic relapser, um, wanting to get well, but not be able to get well. And, and I, Seconds and inches, right? I mean, I was able to get around a group of big book fundamentalists in a different city that uh, helped me get sober. And um, I came back to Medicine Hat and I was saying certain things that were absolutely not well received and about uh, eight months sober. And I was intimidated by Dale as well. Didn't know him as well as I do now at the Mm -hmm. time, but about eight months sober, I did a a couple of shifts. One was I, I found a sponsor out of Texas and another one was is I started really uh, bonding with Dale and, and I told him exactly what I was doing, right? Which was, uh, I was announcing myself as a, as a recovered alcoholic yep. and I was telling people that they could get well and get well quickly. Now that was not being well received. And I remember uh, telling Dale about it. He's like, that's all the signs of good sponsorship, right? 
You know, that's exactly what our big book says. So I guess maybe a question I got back to Dale is, Mm -hmm. is what does it actually mean to be a recovered alcoholic? Oh, clearly that's, that's, that's so, so, so important. And let me start with what it doesn't mean. We get a lot of people showing up at, at our at our meetings, and and I don't care what you say. If you want to say I, my name is such and such, and I'm an alcoholic, fine. But the fact is, I am not, and no one in AA is a recovering alcoholic unless they're still drinking and trying to get sober. That's what recovering means. What recovered means is we have found ourselves in a position because of the grace of God, the fellowship of our outfit, and constant work and self sacrifice for others. That not only do no I do I no longer drink, I don't even want to. And for an alcoholic, a real alcoholic, those of us that have we're like we've danced with the devil, we've mm-hmm. been at the edge, we know. A recovered alcoholic, when I woke up this morning, and one of the reasons I wake up happy almost every morning is I wake up and I realize I don't want to drink. And that's almost the first thing that comes to my mind. Because that is unbelievable. It's been 38 years since I drank, but I can still remember waking up in the morning with my tonsils so swollen up, they were hanging on the back of my neck and, and all the stuff that goes with that and not wanting to drink, but knowing I was going to, Yeah, you know, at the end I knew mm-hmm. I was going to. So recovered alcoholic is any person in AA who not only no longer wishes to drink, but even when tempted, they react sanely and normally. Now, what does that mean? Sane and normal simply means if I'm thinking about drinking, then the first thing I do is I don't call the suicide prevention line and I don't call. Anyway, what I do is try to find somebody to help. Like Bill and Dr. Bob, whenever they would be tempted or things would get bad, like that's our, for those who don't know, that's our founders, co-founders. If you're not feeling good, things are starting to, to twist off a little, go find an alcoholic to help. And our mm-hmm. book says, you can't always find one right in front of you. You know what the book says to do? Go to the police station or the hospital or the doctor's office and ask them to give you somebody to talk to. And I've done that and I've had I've advised people to do it. So rec- recovered alcoholic. I mean, think about that. I'm not cured of alcoholism. If I take a drink, I will. my alcoholism will, will flare back up. I will become a practicing alcoholic. As long as I'm not drinking and doing this thing, I'm a recovered alcoholic. I don't smoke anymore either, so I'm a recovered smoker. But I know enough to know that if I took one cigarette, I would probably kick it off again. For sure. You know, but so recovered, that's what that is. I'm not cured, but I have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body that caused me to drink when I didn't want to. And to do those things that I didn't want to do. And no matter how hard I tried, I could not not do it. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. The definition of an alcoholic is one of us who, uh, what does it say in our book? If when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely. Or if when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, you're probably alcoholic. Now, if that's no longer an issue in my life, I'm a recovered alcoholic. And I say I'm recovered specifically because we have so many people coming to us from treatment centers and counselors and, and the, uh, the harm reduction bunch who are coming into the meetings and saying, Oh, I'm always an alcoholic. I'll always be recovering. I'm, I'm never recovered. My disease is in the parking lot doing pushups. It is not. My book tells me I'm not cocky and I'm not afraid and I'm not, I'm a recovered alcoholic. If you want to be a recovering alcoholic, you can do that. Mm-hmm. But all I ask anybody that's doing that is, Please consider what you're saying. If it's not in the book, perhaps it doesn't belong in the meeting. Perhaps you should go to a counselor and talk like that or start another group. Like, But when we tell people you can recover and you can recover right now and it can just, it's like a, it's like a rocket ship ride to the moon. If you do this the way our, our co-founders built it, it's a little bit like... Uh, it's a controlled explosion because you don't know where you're going. You don't know what's going to sure. happen. Yep. But the only thing you can do is you can say, well, they said it's going to be fun. So hang on, let's do this. Right. Yeah. And I can promise you that all these years later, when our book says the most satisfactory years of your existence lie ahead of you, I believe that. Like I thought it was only next year or the first year or two yeah. you get sober, but I'm now I know that my 39th, 40th, 41st, 42nd year are going to be better than this year. And this year, I I don't know how you could possibly top it. But if you'll think about it this way, and I do, when we were drinking, we said it'll never get that bad again. It yeah. can't get any worse. But it did. Always. Every time. 
Now, when you say it can't get any better than this, and it does every damn time, all I got to do is do this, whether I want to or not, whether I'm scared or not. And some like this, this is intimidating for me. It's not my favorite thing to do in AA. I'd rather, I'd rather clean the toilets out at the clubhouse than speak, <laughs> right? But God decided that I was going to have the gift of the gab, like my sponsor called it. My dad even called it that. I can put words together. So my sponsor said, you don't get to pick what gift you got. You get to pick what you're going to do with your gift, whether you like it or not. You do what you're asked to do. So there you go, right? So this, that's recovered. Yep. I'm a recovered alcoholic. I'm very proud of it. I am not recovering unless I go out and drink again, and then, then I might be recovering. But <laughs> nope, recovered. So proud of it. Nice. Maybe to, uh, to elaborate on that, you've already touched on that a little bit. One of the confusing things that I had in, in Alcoholics Anonymous um, is what it actually meant to be an alcoholic, right? And, and I oh, thought yeah. it had to do with the story. And again, like Ryan already talked about, you know, I, I had money, I had a girlfriend, mm-hmm. I had a house, I had all these things. And I would hear people say they would revert to their story. Right. I'm an alcoholic because I've got four mm-hmm. DUIs. I'm an alcoholic because I got seven years in prison. I'm an alcoholic because I live under a bridge. And I'm like, none of that has happened to me. Maybe I'm not an alcoholic. For sure. So oh, yeah. maybe know. steering back to you, Dale, if any of the listeners at home are, are struggling with yeah. alcohol and yeah. they're, they're thinking, do I have alcoholism or not? Can you maybe uh, elaborate on the symptoms sure of can. alcoholism? Yeah, I, let me uh, let me just say this too: that my first sponsor was an Indian woman from Squamish, and uh, we had almost nothing in common. Uh, there was two people I was kind of scared of: Indians and women. Partly because I'm part Indian, and women always intimidated the hell out of me. But my point in all that is just to say this: what Charlotte and Frank taught me immediately is it's not your story. And the war stories are okay maybe when you're doing a 12-step call, but they didn't like them in the meetings. And here's why. They said, our book says that the hideous four horsemen are what define our alcoholism. Terror, bewilderment, frustration, despair. And what I just read about when I'm drinking, I can't stop. And when I'm stopped, I, I can't stay stopped. Right? So... If you're talking to anybody in Alcoholics Anonymous, whether they're a 16-year-old teenager from uh, a little girl from grade 11 at the school or an 85-year-old guy that, that we brought in from the, from the old folks' home, if you talk to them about terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair, you'll relate every time because then you don't have to be drinking or doing what each other did. You only have to identify right there. Mm-hmm. That means anyone who is here can help anyone who is here. Now, if you want, I guess I could, I could say it the simplest way. If you want to find out if you're an alcoholic or not, and I'm not interested in the de- definition of an alcoholic by the government yeah. or by the church, and I, no disrespect intended, I'm only interested in the definition of an alcoholic as Alcoholics Anonymous states it because that's the most successful organization in the history of Earth. And, and I know that sounds like a, impossible, but it's true. We have 180 countries and 4 million people at least sober. That's the most that's ever happened in the history of mankind. There's been a couple of people that got close, but they let themselves get distracted by outside issues, other Mm -hmm. things. So the the definition of our alcoholism, if you want to find out if you're an alcoholic or not, do what the book says. Go out and try some controlled drinking. Try it more than once. It won't take you long to decide if you're honest with yourself. Now, that's scary advice to give somebody that's, that's, that's vibrating, but I, I promise you this, and it may sound cold, I don't know, and if it does, too bad. It's just true. But if you got somebody that you're, that you're curious about, or if you yourself are curious, try quitting for a period of time. Try quitting for a year, it probably won't. Or if you want to test yourself faster, run down to the corner, get a bottle, and ask and have a few drinks, see if you can quit, see if you want to quit. Try it a couple times. You'll know if you can't quit. And if you end up in jail again or in the wrong house yeah. <laughs> at three in the morning, <laughs> for sure. that kind of thing, you're, you're probably alcoholic. And then you need to come see us. Yeah. And we're not going to diagnose you, but I promise you, if you come hang with us for, what, three or four meetings at that most, you will be able to tell yourself, and you can, and we're not going to ask you. If you want to say, you know what, I think I am, we'll 
slap you on the back and say, welcome home. Yeah. And if you want to not do nothing for a while, we're going to just leave you be who you are. It's the most wide open outfit I've ever seen. That's awesome. It's funny. Right? I, I remember it was, I think the, the summer before I quit, the summer before I got sober, uh, I had a really, really rough night that police were involved. Paramedics were involved. It was a, it was a bad night. And I woke up the next morning for the 8 million time. I'm never doing that again. Right. I'm done. I'm <laughs> not doing that again. And I think that was the first time I really, really, well, no, I think I always meant it, but like this would, I think I was actually trying to commit to actually doing it. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I remember making a conscious decision. I said, I'm going to do, I'm not going to drink for 28 days because, uh, because treatment programs are 28 days. I'm like, in my mind, I said, if I can make it 28 days, I don't have a problem. Because mm-hmm. of my ignorance as to what it was, right? Yeah. And I remember making it 28 days. Yeah. And I was not a fun person for 28 days. <laughs> <laughs> and I know what that's like. And on that 28th day, I was literally sitting in the bar with drinks lined up. I had my first through five drinks planned, what they were going to be, because I missed them. And they were waiting, and I was literally counting down to the minute. And that minute hit and just started pounding, yeah. pounding drinks. And I don't remember how that night ended. Definitely not <laughs> but an alcoholic. That, but <laughs> that proved to me, that proved to me in my sick mind that I wasn't, I didn't have a drinking problem. Yeah, I know. Until, until we know what the definition of an alcoholic actually is, right? Yeah. Then we can make up all sorts of excuses, not even excuses, because they actually make sense. Because mm-hmm. even our families, our wives, our, our children, uh, for, for the women out there, your husbands and stuff, if you can quit drinking for three or four days, you're going to win some confidence back. And they're going to yeah. say, well, see, you're probably not alcoholic. You just got to moderate a little. And you'll believe it because you yeah. want to. And because it kind of makes sense. And then the next time or the time after that, when you go to the store and get that bottle of wine and you find out it's gone before he gets home, uh, then you got to run and get another one. You know, that's, that's how this thing works. Absolutely. It's insidious as hell. Yeah. Crazy, crazy, crazy. I know yeah. I quit drinking. I quit uh, on a bet. I used to rodeo quite a bit and a buddy of mine and I drank awfully hard, awfully, awfully hard and we did, did crazy stuff. So a couple of our friends that we were rodeoing was said that, well, bet you you can't quit drinking for three months. And so him and I did, and, and I did quit drinking for three months, and my wife was happy, even though I, like you, I was a bear to be around. I was restless, irritable, discontented, yeah. like their book says, and I was grouchy and picking on everybody, but I didn't drink for three months. And my wife thought, even as bad as I was, that was better than how I'd been coming home. But when the, when the bet was over, we were out at a roping out at, uh, just outside of town here, and, uh, and I won. Well, I guess we, I can't remember if we both won, maybe. I don't think, I think I won. Said the, the prize was a bottle of whiskey. And I'm, I'm a real big animal guy and stuff, and, and I grew up on a ranch, but I, I drank the bottle of whiskey right away. I started to, and I had two friends say, Dale, why don't you just stay quit? I didn't know what they were saying to me. And I got into that bottle of whiskey. I was 27 years old, summertime, so probably about now. And uh, when I woke up, I was, my, I was sitting on the tailgate of my truck, and my feet were dangling. I'd fallen backwards, laying on my saddle or something. And the sun had burnt my face badly. And I'd left my horse tied to the side of my truck, or the trailer rather, for about four hours, five hours. And I don't do that to animals. I mean, he wasn't hurt, but it's just, that's cruel. Mm-hmm. You don't do that crap. He was saddled and had his halter on and stuff. But he, And I, that was in my fifth step because I felt so guilty. And I'll tell you this, I, I never, ever was able to not drink again until I got into AA. I drank every day for, for 27 to 8 to 9, 30, at least four and a half years. Every day I drank, at least a Mickey or so to keep me going. Mm-hmm. And about twice a week, I'd get level full and maybe oftener. And uh, that was my initiation into Okay, you're full. You're full fledged, full blown alcoholic, and I did not know that I was, and I still didn't think I was an alcoholic when I got to AA acting like that because I had too much money. Yeah, I had a house, a wife, a Corvette, uh, and I mean it's all gone, going. <laughs> it's all flushing itself out the door. For sure. But my my ego wouldn't let me believe that I was an alcoholic. I thought when my dad and I were in Rocky Mountain House one time, where he kind of grew up. 
the, we were just outside the bar and there was an old Indian guy there. And, and dad, my dad's side is where our Blackfoot, the Indian side comes from, right? And dad was always ashamed of drunk Indians. And I didn't, couldn't even know why. But uh, he looked at this old Indian standing out in front of the bar in a long coat and he was dirty and waiting for the bar to open. And dad said, that's an alcoholic. And I thought, well, okay, that's an it. I didn't know that we were, or I was, because mm-hmm. I had a crazy hard work ethic, still had money in the bank. Now, I would have lost it. Like our our books say, that some of us can quit before the final curtain drops on us, or 10 yeah. years before the end, right? And that's where I was. So, at 31 years old. I mean, that's crazy, right? But here we are. Sober, happy, yeah. excited. Who knew? <laughs> I didn't yeah. know that. No, that's awesome. Um, I think for for a lot of people that I've spoke to before, their their only exposure to uh, Alcoholics Anonymous has been through Hollywood, <laughs> and there seems to be this uh, misconception that Alcoholics Anonymous means meeting attendance. Yeah. Um, can you maybe just elaborate on the difference between the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous versus the program oh, of God, Alcoholics yeah. Anonymous? And and uh, we've kind of alluded to it a little bit uh, when Rick was talking, and, and I think you mentioned it too, Mark. You did seven years of in and out. You didn't have to do that as nearly as much, and I didn't do it at all. And I think a big part of the difference is if you get lucky enough to get to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, that's a real deal, and not one of the uh, wine bitch stitch and complain. Right? An AA meeting, let me see if I can put it this way. Many people understand that there's really, really good church services and really bad ones, right? It has nothing to do with the church or the people running it. It has to do, or it it is to do with the people running it, sorry. AA is the same way. A meeting will not get you sober and certainly won't keep you sober. Yeah. Unless you go to the meeting and somebody talks to you after the meeting and says, are you interested in getting sober and staying that way? And are you willing to go to any length to get it? Is there anything that you won't do to stay sober? I was asked that question and given some time to answer it, right? They asked me that and because they didn't want me trying to play God. It, they wanted me in a position where I was completely teachable that I didn't have any of that false pride and ego left, right? If you can go to a meeting where they're they're saying things like, get yourself a home group, get there early, stay late, help others. The only reason for missing your home group meeting is a death in the family and it had better be yours. (laughs) You know, that gets your attention that way. And it's funny and you can have a joke about it, but what it does, what it did for me, my sponsor's husband used to say that to, to us all the time. What it does is it gets me committed that I'm going to a meeting every week to try to find somebody to help, not to be helped. Yeah. Right? We, if we haven't learned within the first few days, I would say, certainly a couple of weeks. As soon as you stop shaking and can your hands stop sweating so you feel goopy when you're holding hands at the... <laughs> anyway. <laughs> that's I think we've all that, been that there. Hot, sticky hand. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let, me, let me just put it as simply as I can. I was so fortunate, and so I treat my sponsees and everybody the same way, and you piss a lot of people off doing this. But they told me within three days, I guess, as soon as I stopped shaking enough that I could uh, have a glass cup instead of a styrofoam, Charlotte and Frank and some of the old-timers would say, okay, now time to get busy and start helping Alcoholics Anonymous. Get out there and do some dishes. Get Wash dishes, clean ashtrays back then. As soon as I could, uh, they found out that I could drive and still had a license. Not because I deserved one. It mm-hmm. just hadn't got caught lately. Mm-hmm. They had me running around, picking people up, bringing them to meetings, doing whatever. And they also had me sponsoring and helping others within weeks. And Charlotte used to say, look, you're at step three. How come you're not helping the people who don't have step one yet? She had me, <laughs> she used to say to me, okay, you're, so you're sober. You know a bunch of alcoholics out there. And I said, I don't know. I don't know anybody. That, she said, who did you drink with? Uh, and I said, oh, no, she means my drinking buddies that are cowboys. And she did. She said, why, why don't you go tell them where you've been? Because you haven't been around for a while. Let them know that you're sober. And uh, if they're interested, you know how to help. And just leave it at that. Yeah. So the deal is you can go to the meetings you want trying to, to get helped. And that'll keep you sober for a little while, but not happily sober. Mm-hmm. Or you can do what 
what Mark says all the time to his guys and, and I do to the people I work with, you can get well really quick, immediately, and you can start helping people tomorrow. If you've been sober two weeks, I mean, can you think about that? When I was sober two weeks and I went out to talk to a couple of my buddies that I drank with that were drunk every day and, and really drunk probably once a week. And I would go and I had something for two weeks they couldn't think of doing. I couldn't think of doing two weeks, that whole four years after I had that uh, bat, bat I won. So the idea is go to the meetings to find somebody to help. Go to the meetings to look to be of service. I don't care if the service is cleaning the bathrooms or whatever. Do something to help Alcoholics Anonymous and the people in it. And I promise you, the, 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 there's no end to this thing. And you will get bored. And like Mark and I have talked about this because I've gone through the thing of where you start to get kind of jaded. And that'll happen. But the answer to that for me has never been to go the other way. It's yeah. never been to turn and walk away and go find something else to do. I find other things to do anyway outside. But the answer for me has always been getting deeper. Try harder. Take on another position. Go be the GSR. Go be the New York delegate. I mean, there's a lot of work we could do. And anytime I'm doing something that helps alcoholics, and when I wake up in the morning and whether I'm here or in Denver or pick a place somewhere I am, if I wake up in the morning and I realize I'm sober and I get to do AA stuff today and I still see it as get to, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, 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 and I don't want that to sound as corny as it may have come out because I sometimes... Like when you have a really good job, doesn't mean you love it every day, but you get to keep that job because you showed up every day, right? And my family, I get to keep my family because they show up every day yeah. and I don't always like my son or either one of them. There's, <laughs> there, you know, there's times when I'd knock them on their ass if I thought I'd get away with it. Same thing about AA. There's times when I'm just a little fed up, frustrated and tired. And, and, and I know that might sound uh, ignoble and not too gallant, but it's real. The answer is never, ever quit. And if, if, if nothing else, if you, you can pray that you get a newcomer who is really, really sick, really bad one, especially somebody you don't like, <laughs> right? And then you watch the light come on. If you pick up somebody to go to a meeting and they stink so bad, old wine, and they got a black eye and all of that, and you take them to a meeting and you do that because God would have you do that. If I, if I do what I'm asked to do, I've got to try to help his kids because one of his kids helped me. And if I don't pass that on, how on earth can I keep this? Yeah. And what kind of a man would I be, right? Absolutely. You know what? It's, if I take something that I don't deserve and then don't help my neighbor, mm -hmm. I learned that as a little kid on the farm. Works the same way here. That's the deal. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Um. One of the biggest challenges that, that I've seen personally with uh, people that we've talked about it, you know, the, yeah. the sprinters, not marathon runners, right? They come out of the gate hot mm. and, you know, they might get six months of sobriety or a year of sobriety or sometimes five years or 10 years and they go back out or even worse, they get suicidal in recovery. Yeah. Um, the two biggest things that I've run into is either an element of dishonesty has oh, come yeah. back into their life or yeah. just flat out complacency. Can you maybe talk yeah, about complacency, your... the, the laziness? Complacency is really just lazy, right? And I've done that. I don't need to do that anymore. Yeah. I, 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 I did a 12 step call last week. Why am I doing another one? But I think more importantly, the two biggest things that I think are killing people and always have been the two biggest things that kill people in AA is we, we don't emphasize enough, or maybe I don't, the, the concept of rigorous honesty. Yeah. Having yep. abs. And you know, my sponsor wrote, and it's in my other big book. I have two, my original big books. It's in the top page. And she wrote it there for me because I'm, because I'm a liar. I was cash register honest. Like you could trust me with if, if I owed you a thousand bucks or if you overpaid me 500, you were getting your money back. I was cash register honest, but in every other area of my life, I was deeply dishonest, especially to me. She said that my definition for honesty for the rest of my life had to be having no intent to deceive. Mm -hmm. Now that's a lot different than what I thought honesty meant, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I, I grind that into my sponsees all the time, and I know it gets old, and, but I still say it. 
because I know it's true. Absolute no, and have no intent to deceive. Now you're not going to live up to that 100. percent But if you're doing your in your nightly inventory, you step 10, 11, you're yeah. going to have a look at it and say, "Was I honest today?" Well, 85, 90% maybe. So I think that's the biggest thing. It's yeah. the dishonesty yeah. and and resentment is. Our book says resentment is the number one offender. But can you get a resentment if you're if you're not being honest? Like if you're honest, will you get a resentment or will you keep it for more than a day? Right? If I am being rigorously honest and I start to get a resentment from something at a meeting or something at work or my kid does something stupid and I'm mad at him. But if I do my daily thing and it says was I selfish, resentful, dishonest or afraid, then I catch that resentment when it's really little. Mm-hmm. I go to 67, 68 and work it out. And then I don't have a problem with resentments as long as I'm rigorously honest and tolerant. But does that make sense? Absolutely. For sure. I find it actually yeah. more important than, and not being that faith isn't important. But it is. But for, for me and, and my experience with working, you know, with dozens of people, yep. it's it's been the honesty factor, right? Yep. Like, yep. The, you know, our, our book says we just have to be mildly suspicious that there might be something out there other than you, yep. right? But there's no half measures on the honesty None. side. I don't no. see people uh, stay around for very long or if they do, you oh. know. They're they're so freaking dry that they are going to internally combust, right? So <laughs> yeah, they're there, and they're the ones at the meetings that, uh, and, and that's I'm, I mean, I love AA, but I'm not going to try to pretend that we don't have, uh, or nor that at times I haven't been the arsehole in the meeting. Yeah. I'm not, you know, the one that's been judgmental and grouchy and and sitting in the corner, praying at people, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know that kind of thing. But that's the kind of person that we see in our program who is on the emotional dry bender and it's not survivable you will either suicide or you'll take somebody out with you or you'll mm-hmm. drink again yeah and uh and, and that of course is that's back to your pink cloud question if i if i like being on that pink cloud if i enjoy the view if i like the soft texture of this pink cloud and how fun it is <laughs> then i'm going to do the stuff that i need to do to stay up there and that is primarily rigorous honesty If I make a mistake, fix it, apologize, don't say, well, they didn't really notice. Yeah. If I follow the principles of this thing as written, not as Dale would have it, mm-hmm. <laughs> I tend to be okay and I can fix what I break anyway. It's the biggest thing here. Absolutely. Yeah. Rigorous honesty, tolerance, love. But tolerance doesn't mean a position of being politely pissed off yeah. while indulging myself in the fantasy that I would never behave that way. <laughs> That's just a resentment in hiding. <clears throat> tolerance is to love people as they are. Charlotte used to always say to me, Dale, it's easy to love the lovable. Yeah. But there's very little spiritual effort involved. What I want you to do is go find people you don't like. Mm-hmm. Love them and help them get sober in spite of the fact that you'd put them in jail if you could for their other behaviors. And that is true. And it does work. Help somebody get sober, especially if you don't like them. Or like, well, maybe don't even like them, but certainly don't like their lifestyle or the things that they do. Because we get them all. It's just true. For sure. And I got to say, there's some people who, who tolerated me at my worst and loved me the way I was. And and said things to me that, that I was ready to rip their lips off, you know. <laughs> But they loved me the way I was, and then they let God do the changing, and it and it worked. You know, the old guys, they told me a couple of years after I sobered up that they, uh, and I think they were telling the truth, that there were, out of the 10 of them, the old guys that we hung with, only two of them thought I was going to make it. The other eight said that as crazy as I was, and as violent, and as or kind of irascible, they didn't think I'd make it. Yeah. So, wow. right? You don't know. Yeah. So if, if someone's at home right now and they're, they know they have a problem with alcohol, yeah. they've, they've diagnosed themselves an alcoholic and they want to start this journey. I, I guess a couple, two part question is, is a, how do they get started on this journey into recovery and into, into Alcoholics Anonymous and B, what should they, I mean, you need a guide, right? And, and our, we call it a sponsor. Um, what should they look for in, in finding a sponsor? Well, the way to get started, if you're out there and you're, and if you're even mildly suspicious that you might have a problem, do you know anyone who goes to AA? Anybody in the family? Anybody. 
talk to them because they'll help immediately. Just give them a call confidentially, I'm sure, if you want to. Or go to AA.org and uh, get phone numbers. If you're if you're in Medicine Hat, look look it up in the uh, uh, just Google it, and you'll find it. Call, make the phone call. We got a 24 hour answering service number, and one of us will come and see it. If you're a girl, one of the girls will come. If you're a guy, one of the guys will come, and uh, we'll get you to your first meetings. You don't have to do anything except want to be sober. That's it. Now, when you get to Alcoholics Anonymous, or if you're in Alcoholics Anonymous and had a bad experience with some sponsors that weren't perhaps, shall we say, devoted and dedicated to uh, what you may have heard our way of life is, that you've heard other information, get back to AA as soon as you can and find yourself the biggest big book thumper, step Nazi you can find. Go up to him and ask him, I really don't know what I'm doing here. I'm ready to do anything to, to make this work. And can you help me? And I promise you they will. Do that. But stick with... This is going to sound a little bit... Uh, I don't know how it's going to sound. Don't care. <laughs> <laughs> One of our co-founders said this. Stick with the winners. By that, that implies there's losers. And there are. There are people who are in this program for not the best motives. Or they're not sure. trying very hard. Those are the losers, in my opinion. Now, try to help them if you can, but don't hang with them. When... When Dr. Bob said stick with the winners, he meant go to the meetings with the people, the guys and the girls that are devoted to helping others get sober. Because everything else comes out of that. Yeah. If you're devoted to helping one more person not have to live the way you lived, then you're, that's as selfless as you can get. And selflessness is the key, in my opinion. Absolutely. No, that's amazing. And it's such great advice. It's not even advice. It's written, right? Yeah, and it, it works. It, the big book says it. I yeah, believe it. That absolutely. settles it. Yeah. <laughs> not a question. Yeah. I think it's, if, if you've been in this program for any length of time, and if you're blessed enough to have a good home group and a good meeting yeah. that, you're, that that is your home, it's pretty wild when you start traveling and you start seeing yeah. meetings in other places. And even, you know, whether it's traveling or just a different meeting yeah. and just seeing how the buffet <laughs> that there is of of meetings right from from amazingly shockingly book based healthy meetings to just misery yeah, right? yeah and right, i think Rick, and that's true and i and i tell my and i tell my sponsees when i'm working with somebody i said the easiest way to tell a healthy meeting from a bad meeting is if you walk in the door and you hear laughing you're in a good place yeah yeah show up early because I don't know how many meetings you go into and it's just crickets and all it is is, you know, you, you, you'll sit down and you'll hear somebody talking about how they're 22 years sober and still wanting, still angry at traffic right? yeah. <laughs> or, or right. their wife or their dog. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, and the whole <laughs> meeting just turns into venting, right? And Which is not recovery. No, that's not all self-centered. What's the, you know, what's the solution, right? And that's that's what I always tell the people that I work with too, right? Is look for look for a solution-based yep. happy meeting. Yeah, for sure. If people are laughing and joking, and especially when you're like first broken, right? When you're first fresh, you go in, you want to punch those guys in the face. Like, what are you so happy? <laughs> that's why you're always right? mad at me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Rick, and that's the same. And just to, to add to, you shouldn't feel like the Lone Ranger. When I came in, there was some guys like Riel and Brian and those old, those old guys that were around. And I was, and I would have, I would have smacked them in the mouth if I thought I could have got away with it because they were the me that I was then. And yeah, it, yeah. it grows. And, and I, but because they were who they were, and I watched them, and they were happy sober. Then I tried to, I became more like them. I tried to follow that, which is the same thing. If we're doing this right, we're going to piss a lot of people off when when they get here. But the ones that genuinely want to get sober will will see enough of it to say, okay, I don't like him, but I'm going to listen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Well, I was lucky enough to also have a group of guys around me that you know, if I phoned them, the response is pretty consistent. Is I don't give a shit what you feel yeah. like. Yeah. I don't, I, at no point did I ask how you feel. I'm asking what you're doing. Yeah, what yeah. is the action behind it? Like, yeah. <clears throat> we all feel shitty. Great. What, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. You know, what are you going to do about it? You yeah. can sit there and pout and moan and bitch and complain about the, your lot in life, or you can do something about it. Yeah. And I was lucky enough to have people around me that weren't like, I'm, I'm not a small guy and I've been told, 
I can be intimidating and loud and can be are. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I had people around me that weren't that didn't give a shit and would and would walk into that potential conflict with me and tell me what I didn't want to hear, knowing mm-hmm. it's what I needed to hear. You know why? Because they love the alcoholic, which is you, more than they're, they're more than they're afraid. Yeah. They they actually trust this higher power that I'm gonna step in the middle of this where I and like prior life would have got me probably hurt. But I'm I gotta do this because this is for for one of my one of our fellow alcoholics. Right? Yeah, yeah. Sure. Our book says we should not hesitate to go to the most sordid spot on earth on such a mission. So why would we be afraid? What's the worst that can happen? I get to chair the meeting in heaven tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's right. And I was referred to as a term, I'd rather stand on your toes and stand on your grave. Yep. Right? And, um, you know, I I love you enough to tell you the truth. And, And I know, Dale, you've had you know, all sorts of controversy over the years, <laughs> yeah. but it's because you actually care. I do care. Right? It's yeah. easy to co-sign someone's victim card. Yeah. It's difficult to actually tell them, it's like, hey, you're self-centered to the core, yeah. and you're going to have to be an active participant in your own recovery here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's not always popular. No, very often it's not popular, particularly if they've come to us through the uh, through the helping professions. Yeah. Awesome. So maybe I'll just finish with one final question. Yeah. Um, what's the what's the biggest gift sobriety has given to you? Oh, given me or given given you? Huh. Well, I, I, this may sound I don't know how this is going to sound, but it's true. Uh, yesterday, I spent the half of the morning. I spent the early in the morning with five of the guys from the program having breakfast with one of our newcomers. I went from there to my son's house, who I don't deserve to have. And spent two and a half hours with my grandson. Went home and I had a granddaughter and a grandson at the other house and spent the afternoon partly with them. The biggest gift this program has given me is that my children are happy. My children are not afraid. They love me as a man and I feel like a real man. So the biggest gift Alcoholics Anonymous has given me is what it gave my family. They're free. My children aren't afraid. I love it, man. That's great. Wow. Yeah, I don't... Amazing. I mean, I... I can relate on so many levels to everything. I think right? I'm just still 33 years behind you is all. <laughs> and and every year is going to get better. Yeah. Like, your kids are young. <clears throat> like, I have grandkids now, buddy. And I had no idea this was going to be this good. I well, It was great. When I was the kids, growing up with the kids and being able to go to the ball games and show up yeah. and keep a job, I had a business, I could sponsor the hockey team and I could take the kids to the roller derby things they were doing and do all that. That's great. I was a good dad. You know, our book, our book says that we had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we couldn't live up to them, even when we tried. So you get sober, you start doing this thing and you get to be the kind of dad you always knew you could have been and should have been, mm-hmm. but now I am been. I am the kind of dad that I, I'm, I'm a little bit. Uh, I think I had the best dad in the world. I do, you know, tough cowboy guy, really good guy, and I think that I'm as probably close to as good a dad as he was. And I, how can you get any better than that? I get to be the man my dad always knew I could be. And I spent so many years running away from. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. Real. With that, I think we uh, we can pretty much wrap this up with, like, thank, you know, I, I genuinely want to say thank you because I know you've been this fixture, a bit of a North Star in this program for a lot of people. Yeah. And you've played, you've played a role in so many, you know, me me and you, we know each other. We talk all the time. I don't know that you've, we've really done a lot of work together, but I know how impactful you've been on people that I have worked really close with. And, you know, and I'll be the first one to say this. You say some unpopular shit. (laughs) And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of times that you'll say something and I'll almost cringe going, fuck, somebody's going to be pissed off about that. 
at the end of the day, I don't know that anybody that I've ever met in my entire life has helped as many people as you, either directly or indirectly through sponsorship, lineage, and just support. Um, So honestly, on behalf of like every alcoholic I know, thank you. Because, I mean, I think you've at least had an influence either directly or indirectly over every single person I know. Well, that's awesome. If if that's true, then, and all I can say out of, for that is I had g- good sponsorship who always said to me, it's in the book. If you do what that book says and don't be afraid of anything and you only have one higher power, that's God. If he asks you to do something, you go do it. If it makes somebody happy, good. If it makes somebody angry, probably good too, yeah. but none of your business. Do what you're supposed to do. See what happens. Look, amazing. And yeah, I just want to, thank both of you guys for coming in today. I know I've known Mark for quite a few years. I worked with Mark previous in our previous lives. I yeah. uh, got to know Mark really well since moving to Medicine Hut and, and in the recovery circles. And you've been a big inspiration for me as well. And I've heard lots about you, Dale, in, in, in the circles of recovery in town, right? And I can agree with Rick. Most of the stuff I've heard about Dale is, oh my God, he's such a grumpy old bastard and this and that, right? <laughs> and this is my first chance getting to meet you. And I can't say enough good things that everything you've said today, I, I relate to everything you say today. I see nothing wrong with, and that's your experience. That's your experience, my experience. Right. And that's what the book says. And it's working for you and it's working for thousands of other people. And mm-hmm. it's been amazing to sit here and listen to this. And man, everything that you said today, I can pick out so many parts of your recovery journey. That's relatable to me. The honesty piece, the um, go to any length, all these things. Right. And if it, somebody tells me that it's in the literature and it works, well, then I'm going to try it because yeah. it's worked for you. So why wouldn't it work for me? If it, you know, I'm not going to guess at this. I guessed for 40 years yeah. and yeah. ended up trying to take my life. So yeah, if it's working, I'm doing it. Awesome. Wow. So yeah, if you're out there and any of this has made you think, you know, all the places that Dale told you to call, you know, uh, the AA hotline, the, if you know anybody and, and here at OCJ, I mean, um, we're, we're pretty wide open on social media and phone numbers, and mm-hmm. it's not like I haven't answered the phone at three in the morning more than once. So, really, right. because I know, I know what happens at three in the morning because I've been there, and that's the worst place to be—the witching hour. Yeah, you know, yeah, and, and so there's true. and there's so many. You're so limited on who's going to answer the phone at three o'clock in the morning. Just know that we will. Absolutely, we will. So reach out. Awesome. Thanks again. Oh, you're welcome. Wonderful. Happy to do it. My least favorite thing in AA, but it's the one I'm probably best at. And and that's that's kind of one. You think God don't have a sense of humor? Try this. <laughs> but I'm happy to be of service. Thanks. From Darkness to Life is an Our Collective Journey podcast. These are the true stories of struggles and triumphs against addiction and mental health challenges. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Our Collective Journey is here for you. Please consider supporting OCJ by visiting ourcollectivejourney.ca and clicking donate. All proceeds go to supporting the health and wellness of people in our community. Hosted by members of Our Collective Journey. Produced by Rob Pape. Engineered, edited, and directed by Dave Cruikshank. From Darkness to Life is a plugged-in media network exclusive. Thank you for listening.